within the medical profession and also within lay people, I think eating disorders are poorly understood and often dismissed. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, welcome to our second episode of our second medical series, where today we talk with Dr. Mark McGrath. He's a GP or medical doctor in Australia. We love listening to his voice, and I have to give you full disclosure here. We recorded him for the first medical series, and I lost the recording. So leave it up to him to be very positive and say, well, that's okay. I kind of wanted to change my answer to one of your icebreaker questions about his favorite food. So as I'm listening again, really, it's whatever it is, is going to be made with love. That's going to be his favorite food. And so when you hear that, you know his interest in medical and psychology is that perfect recipe for medical providers to work in the field of eating disorders. He is certified as an eating disorder specialist within IADEP, International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals, as well as within the Australia-New Zealand program. Dr. McGrath shares lots of ways that he's been trained in the field of eating disorders, but I do think it comes naturally for him. And to continue to seek out that education, which is so what this podcast is about, helping you know where to connect, the people and places that are going to help you get to the level of competency that you like to be. And at one point, Abby asked him a question on what a typical day is. So a couple of translations for those of us in the U.S. The first one you'll probably figure out when he says he has people do bloods the day before. That's your labs. And then the OBS are the observations, orthostatic measures, weights, and temperature. And those are very medical things, right? But he said one of the most rewarding things that he does is spending more time with clients, the patients. It's like 30 minutes instead of 5, 10, or 15. He says you can make a big change with a small amount of effort. Another thing, Abby and I shared some listener reviews during our fan favorites episode. Wanted to share one today. And this comes from Maddie. Maddie says, a must for practitioners caring for others. I absolutely love this podcast. I look forward to listening and I feel I'm learning something new or finding a new resource to enhance my work as a dietitian each episode from RDs and from other providers. Excellent audio quality and guests. Thank you, Maddie, so much. And we would love to hear from you. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, and share. And finally, a quick disclaimer, we do bring in medical nutrition and therapy professionals who share their passion, and that is to pique your interest on what's available in the field. But this is not intended, this podcast is not intended for the substitute for professional training and supervision. It is for information and educational purposes, and extra training and supervision is required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders. It's also not a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. 
and wanted to kind of lead into that I'll be starting my professional supervision groups in July. And it is a July to December commitment once a month. So check out in the show notes or bethharrell.com backslash professional. Dr. Mark McGrath, we are really, really excited to have an Aussie with us for the seasoned RD. Thanks so much for having me. Yes, cannot wait to learn from you and share with others, but we'll keep it kind of short and sweet, especially I know that it's morning time over there. So just warming up here. Mm-hmm. Mountains or beach? Mountains, definitely. Mountains. Love, yeah. love hiking, love nature. I mean, both are good, of course, but um, if I have to choose mountains. Okay. Not that we really have that many mountains in Australia. I was going to ask you about that, <laughs> but I didn't want to sound silly. Yeah, hills. <laughs> hills. Okay. <laughs> That's how we are in the Midwest. Lots of hills. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast or dinner? Dinner. Definitely dinner. And yeah. dinner meal of choice. Hard to narrow it down. I, I, I think I said last time... Uh, spaghetti bolognese but I think it's more something that's made with love you know and and care and attention and I think you know it doesn't matter if it's simple or complicated it's you know if there's love put into it it's great and even better if it's um you know shared with people that you care about are you reminded now of how much we love Dr. McGrath I know we were talking before we got on about you and what we remember about you and just it was the warmth and and everything is done with intention and anyways so that's a great answer and love with spaghetti or bolognese is also amazing okay last question audiobook or paper book depends on the context for studying something that I'm wanting to learn paper because I love annotating and scribbling and all that sort of stuff and it helps me absorb the information. I think for pleasure, probably more audio um, mm. just because it's easier and you can have it on the go and, yeah. And yes. actually I really like it when if it's the author themselves reading it, it makes it even better. I yeah. agree. Same. Mm. Yeah, so different ways for different things, audio book for pleasure, paper book maybe for something else. All right. Well, I would, I'm interested in any board exam that you have taken and what it was like to take that. If I can take you back to that day where you had to take an exam, do you have any memories of what it was like? You're, mm, well, we the, don't... the most recent one was the CDS. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that was, that was I, I actually found that pretty stressful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you're a certified nice little reminder of what it was like actually back back in the day because it's been a while since I studied for any other exams. But yeah, all the you know preparation and you know knowing the material, but then doubting yourself and you know going through the questions and you know wondering, you know, second guessing your answer. Hang on, is this too is this too straightforward or you know is there a trick to it? <laughs> yeah, even with all of your experience and you. You knew, but you're all of us get nervous. Not all of us. We've had a couple of people who said that they weren't, but most of us do get nervous. And so you are a certified eating disorder specialist, the very first in Australia. But tell us about your background. How did you get into medicine as a field and then eating disorders? Uh, both through circuitous paths. I think, I don't know, I reckon a lot of people in life you know, you start out, it's good to have goals and intentions, but I think life always sort of, uh, you know, throws you a curveball and you end up, 
in, in places that you didn't expect, and that's certainly the case with me. I, 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 I think in high school I had a, my most enthusiastic teacher was my biology teacher, and I think that inspired my interest in biological things. And, yeah, just, just, I just bumbled my way into medicine, bumbled my way through medicine, didn't really I tried a few different things some successfully some not so successfully when I when I graduated ended up working as a GP and then after I was pretty experienced at all the general GP stuff I was just looking for something a bit more fulfilling and rewarding and I identified I had actually a a patient who was in a heavier body who had bariatric surgery and it had failed and she had a lot of psychological comorbidities and I was looking for a way to help her and that sort of led me down the Hayes pathway although I didn't know that's what it was called back then and and then a psychologist who I was speaking to about that problem and possible potential solutions asked whether I'd be interested in in monitoring eating disorders and I initially like a lot of people said hell no um (laughs) it's true (laughs) And then I did a little bit of just introductory education into it and I thought, oh, I'll just dabble in it a little bit and just see, you know, test the waters and see how it is because it's quite, when it's unfamiliar, it's scary and it's risky. And, um, yeah, and, and, you know, superficially I think it's quite straightforward. And, yeah, I, it just, there was a need and it just evolved. So. Wow. You know, to go from that to being certified as a specialist and now being certified in your country as a specialist too. There is a different certification for those in Australia and New Zealand. So you have the heart for this. When you mentioned the bariatric surgery patient that had the psychological comorbidities and then pairing with a psychologist. So I actually have to go back a little bit for those of the, those who are listening, who don't know what a GP is, it's general practitioner. It's equivalent to a medical doctor here in the United States. And then he mentioned Hayes, which if you've been listening to this podcast at all, you know that that means health at every size. But if you're new to this, that means health at every size. So to find a medical doctor who is aware of health at every size and in tune with the psychology, this was a perfect recipe for you for this specialty that you're in. Yeah, I guess I've always been psychologically minded, you know, from life experiences and so on. And and actually, you know, I would say 90% of presentations to the GP or the family doctor, you know, have some psychological element anyway. So it's I think it's something that probably a lot of, you know, family doctors and physicians and, you know, other people, even surgeons, you know, would inherently have skills and expertise in. Yeah, and it just sort of evolved from that. That that may be a little different where you are. Do they teach you anything about psychology, bedside manner, understanding how your words are going to impact your patient? Um, Well, look, it's been a long time since I went through med school. We did have some, but it's little. But I think the, 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 you know, health professionals who are successful and you know last in their profession I guess develop that knowledge through experience so even if you're a surgeon booking patients for surgery you get a sense of you know 
what that person's makeup is and how they're thinking about, you know, whether they're a good candidate for surgery and how they might handle complications and, you know, sort of helping them to reach an educated decision about whether that's something that's for them. And I think, you know, it's the same with the general practice presentations, even just, you know, simple things like a sore throat or people Mm -hmm. even presenting with recurrent minor problems, whether there's something else going on there Mm -hmm. um, in the background that's driving that. I don't know. I mean, I think that just experience isn't enough. You have to really, I mean, one example that just reminded me is, no, we can't do knee replacement because of your weight, but, mm. and that the risk of surgery, but, but here, here's go get bariatric surgery so you can lose weight. And it's like, wait, what? So there's so many docs who just jump into the weight judging that don't have that warmth and that understanding, even though they have yeah. experience. Yeah, again, I think that's just a problem, you know, endemic to the medical profession that we're very, you know, our training is very weight-centric and 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 also certainly in Australia and I'm assuming in America as well, you know, time pressures and the way that we get paid, there's not an incentive to spend time with patients and so you're often mm-hmm. looking for an easy mm-hmm. solution to a complicated problem mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that's what patients are looking for too. But some, But more often than not, the solutions aren't straightforward. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how did you learn what you learned? Were there any resources, people, books, workshops, things that helped you learn what you needed to, to feel confident as a eating disorders professional? Sure. I had, I had really good training with a local organization in eating disorder monitoring called the Queensland Eating Disorder Service, and they support health professionals and clients in the community with eating disorders to statewide service and I, I guess that got the ball rolling and they did they also offered courses in fbt and cbt mm-hmm. and it must have been i was a little bit out of place in those in those courses being a gp there wasn't too many <laughs> yes <laughs> but it, it, and i to be honest i still don't know why i attended them but I just thought it was interesting and I wanted to see what it was all about and I'm really glad I did because I think as GPs you know when you send someone to the psychologist you don't it's a bit of a black box you don't know what really happens there <laughs> so, for so sure. it's, yeah it's kind of good to have a little interesting to look behind the curtain and then gain a little bit of an understanding and then Slowly, you know, you, you know, there are certain, there are many GPs who develop an interest in counselling, and you can do courses to improve your skills in that area too. Is that who was made up of this? The eating disorder services was that was mostly therapists, or were there other professionals in there? Yeah, therapists and dietitians, psychiatrists, okay. that sort of. Did you have case consults where you met with the team? regularly or was that a little different no not in that context it was that these were just like you know workshops that you know lasted a day or a few days got it okay to start with so what does a typical i don't know maybe not so typical day as a gp look like for you given that you work with those who have eating disorders oh so for me i uh, i you know consult all day there's you know as you know, people with eating disorders who require monitoring often require being seen quite frequently, especially at the start of their treatment. My consults are longer consults, so half an hour rather than, you know, a, a, a generous standard consult is 15 minutes in Australia. 
it, you know, it might be as short as, you know, five to 10 minutes. So, so half an hour is quite, you know, much longer than average. And I don't know, did you, did you want me to run through what's in a standard consult or? Yeah, I mean, I even just saying that what, how much time you spend with someone. And Abby, I know this was your question, but I am really curious, like what age groups and types of diagnoses that you see and how you handle that. There's going to be people listening and, and your episode will come out during our second medical series, which was hugely popular. The first one was. And so we have people coming into the field who are medical providers who are just kind of hearing like, what is it like for a doctor who specializes in this in a typical day? What do they do and what's different maybe? Sure. So, so maybe I should take a step back. So what I offer is medical monitoring for eating disorders and coordination of care and psychoeducation basically. So and I think one of the most rewarding things for me is when I see somebody who, you know, maybe is, you know, subclinical or, you know, in the early stages and you can get in and do some early intervention and intervene. And, and, and in some on some occasions, they don't necessarily need any or, or a lot of, you know, psychological or dietetic input. And you can make a, a big change in somebody's life with really a relatively small amount of effort mm-hmm. um, so I really love that but also loving you know seeing new patients you know or patients with eating disorders you know for their first presentation that's always really rewarding because you know I think you only get one chance at that initial presentation and you've got to really spend some time with them and you know sometimes it'll go my consults will go for two hours or, or you know an hour and a half or two hours and and it's all about listening to their story having them feel heard, providing the psychoeducation and then and then you know get encouraging them to engage and then directing, you know, where that, you know, what's the most appropriate care for them. Oh man. Yeah. Um but yeah that that that's unusual and and would you know that that wouldn't be a standard thing because again Medicare or you know the way that we get paid doesn't support that sort of service for GPs. Psychiatrists will see patients for longer times, like an hour or maybe a bit over an hour. Interesting, because it's the opposite here. Our psychiatrists are typically shorter. Yeah. 15 minutes sometimes, but for the eating disorders, it might be more like 20 to 30 minutes. It depends on where you you go, but you're in an outpatient center, right? Or an outpatient area. It's not inpatient. Yeah. So listening to the, the concerns, providing the validation psychoeducation and then directing them to what's next yeah so so for a review visit that's half an hour then you know they'll they'll come in they'll have had their bloods the day before hopefully they frustratingly often not (laughs) Um, and and then uh, if they need an ecg they'll see the nurse and have that done first and then i'll see them and i'll just you know check in with them see what's happening in their life see how they're going and then go through all the little specifics you know what's the what's the eating been doing go take take a history of what they ate the day before so it's quite specific and see how representative that was you know has there been any other compensatory behaviors like purging and all of those standard things that we go through assess their mood suicidal thoughts you know how's their anxiety how's their sleep how strong are their eating disorder mm-hmm. cognitions and then we'll do their OBS, which is lying and standing, you know, pulse and blood pressure and their weight, which is usually blinded unless there's a good reason not to. 
And then we'll go through and just give them some feedback as to how things are going. And from person to person, it'll depend how much giving, how much feedback to give them, depending on you know what treatment they're having and so on, and how triggering it is for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and go through any recommendations. And you know sometimes if somebody's doing really poorly, then you might have to refer them to hospital mm-hmm. and, and decide what interval you need to see them at again. And, If they go to a hospital for medical stabilization, do you have some around you that are have some good protocols? Yeah, some of the some of the doctors who work in the public system have started an eating disorder service recently at one of the local private hospitals. So that's a really good service, and and you know I have strong connections with them. So it's quite a straightforward matter if you have somebody who you feel needs admission. So we, I'm sure you have as well, you know, criteria, you know, that you go through to see whether somebody requires admission. But, you know, sometimes you, as, you know, if you know that person, even if they're not meeting all the criteria or, you know, you know that that person is is unwell and needs help. And then, you know, in that set, in that private, if, if they has, have insurance and they can afford to go privately, it's a really good option to provide appropriate care for that person. But publicly, it's a little bit, we have a little bit less control over the process. So we can, we send them to emergency, we highlight what admission criteria we feel that they meet. And, but sometimes, you know, the communicate, because they're such a big place as the communication doesn't always um, right, get passed right. on, depends on the level of experience in emergency as to, you know, whether that person agrees with your assessment. And so I just prepare people for the the likelihood that you know there's a chance that even though we know that they need admission that it might not occur and then you make a plan for what what to do if that does happen so it sounds like you're very thorough and helping them make a plan and you know of course we want to take care of the patient at hand especially if it's the kiddo but i i think addressing the guardians or the parents is sometimes a sensitive and tricky manner and definitely nothing where you are taught in school. So how do you go about talking to the parents about this? Are they usually surprised by the severity or do they have a pretty good understanding? No, I think they, in the initial consult, they're usually surprised because, you know, by, you know, in, within the medical profession and also within lay people, I think eating disorders are poorly understood and often dismissed. And, and one of the rewarding things for me is, you know, sometimes they've been to other places where there's, you know, their symptoms or their OBS or things like that have been, you know, discounted. And, you know, in, in the eating disorder field, minor abnormalities on blood tests that you might usually gloss over in the context of an eating disorder can be very significant things like electrolyte abnormalities and phosphate and neutropenia in a mild neutropenia which again you know you you know usually you would those sort of things you would dismiss in another context but in this context they can be very serious so it's really nice to be able to help you know paint a picture for the you know for the client and the parents if they're younger uh, you know as to the implications of all this and why it's so serious that was a great question, Abby. Thanks. Yeah. And you mentioned that they get the blood work the day before if we're lucky, but sometimes, like you said, the blood work could look okay or from, from just a general eye, they look okay. But you can see one of the first times I remember learning this was a young male who the pediatrician, all the labs were normal. And the specialist doctor said, but the testosterone is not where we would expect it to be for him at this time and was looking at all kinds of things. 
And there was a, a little bit of a tiff between the doctor and the pediatrician, doctor specialist and the pediatrician, because they disagreed. Yeah, I think also highlighting to the parents or the client that changes on the bloods are a late change. So the body's really good, good at making compensatory changes mm. to prevent changes in the right. bloods. And so if we see normal bloods, that's you know only somewhat reassuring, whereas mm. abnormal bloods are much more worrying. So just mm. to you know set that expectation from the outset so they don't misinterpret if you tell them, oh, the bloods are fine this week, that doesn't mean everything else is fine. It doesn't discount all the stuff that we talked about for half an hour in the consult. <laughs> it just means, hey, we don't need to go to hospital right now. Uh-huh. Is your practice mostly kids or adults or kind of a good combination of all? It's a mixture. You know, I I guess it represents what I I think, you know, general eating disorder presentations are. It's across all age ranges. It can be, you know, kids in their early teens to, you know, older patients. Predominantly, it's, it's, it's more female than male, but I think that's because men don't present so much with their eating disorders. And it's a wide range of comorbidities and complexity. So, you know, it's, you know, we get the, you know, newly presenting adolescent with an eating disorder, but you also get maybe somebody who's experienced trauma in their life and they've got a longer standing eating disorder or a severe and enduring eating disorder. Mm-hmm. I'm curious how the pandemic has affected your clientele with eating disorders specifically. It's it's gone up over here for sure, but how has it been in Australia? Well, that, that, that that's what the media and the you know the 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 research that I've read has said that there's been a you know an epidemic of eating disorders, but and certainly that's what it's felt like. But I don't. I'm, I may also be getting a skewed view of it. But on an individual level, certainly, you know, being in, you know, it, it's presented certain problems. You know, some people struggle more with, you know, being isolated than others, and you know, it, it, it certainly has had some direct impact on clients, definitely. And 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 there's been some where it's been directly involved in, in triggering eating disorders as well. You wrote an article recently that I saw on your on your website called Doing Healthy Stuff Improves Health Regardless of Weight. And I, as I was looking through this, I thought it was so interesting. So I would love for you to share on the article. I actually posted that purposely for you to see because we oh discussed it last time. <laughs> Did we? I don't even remember. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of my favorite articles that I, I you know, I had read before but but a local dietitian who's doing a uh, who's i think completed a phd somebody pointed out a slide where she had highlighted that particular graph and it's just a really you know a picture tells a thousand words so basic i mean it's hard to it's hard to do in audio but basically it's a study a retrospective cohort study that was done in the us tens of thousands of participants and it was looking it's this is a haze related thing so Look, it was looking at four healthy behaviours and it analysed mortality according to BMI bands. But basically the, 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 the lesson out of it was that, that regardless of your body shape or BMI, doing healthy things improved your mortality. The four healthy behaviours were eating where you ate five serves of fruit and veg or veg per day, whether you exercised 12 times a month, whether you drank alcohol moderately and whether you smoked or didn't smoke. 
Regardless and, of weight. Yeah, so with none of those healthy behaviours, mortality was higher and across the BMI bands it was actually higher in the peop- in the heavier BMI bands. But then adopting even one or two of those healthy behaviours, you could see the mortality drop. But more importantly, you could see how it equalised across the BMI bands. And certainly with three and four, the mortality is very similar across all bands. So the take-home message, as I said, was that, you know, you can be healthy in whatever shape your body is. I'm glad you brought that up, Abby, because that was the question I was going to ask that I forgot once you jumped in, was, you know, you had mentioned, Dr. McGrath, that when you were, so many medical doctors are brought up in a weight-centric world. How did you shift over to health at every size? Because this, that we are taught really, you know, whatever is wrong, let's look at weight first. And it, it can be a hard shift. We get a lot of pushback from doctors here. Yeah. And, and here, and it, and I think it's going to, I feel like things are changing, but I think, you know, things move slowly and I, I reckon it's going to be another decade before it's more widely accepted. Mm-hmm. And the, your, your dietitians seem to be a bit more advanced in this understanding of this than the medicos, but hopefully we'll catch up. But it started with that patient, you know, many years ago that, you know, the, the, you know, failed in inverted commas bariatric surgery. Mm. And then, you know, that that led me down that path. Yeah. Yeah. That's the evidence. And maybe that's why dietitians have hit it first, because just the word dietitian is diets. (laughs) And we are raised with, you know, I had a dietitian who's been in the field a really long time, not in the eating disorders field, but as a dietitian. And she said, well, if we don't have weight management, what do we have? And it's just so interesting to think that that dietitians might feel like they can provide nothing for people if they're not trying to tell them to shrink their body. So I'm really yeah. grateful. And, and telling people, I, I think as a GP, telling people to lose weight is very unhelpful advice. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. you know, as we know, it, you know, there's a lot of potential harm to be had from that. You know, weight cycling in itself is a risk factor for heart disease. But and it's also just very non-specific, unhelpful advice. Whereas, you know, with just a little, even if even if you can't convince medicos that promoting weight loss isn't isn't a good idea, just by being a little bit more specific and encouraging healthy behaviours, you know, I like to sort of say, well, look, you know, what have you actually got to lose? Right, just take weight off the table, don't focus on it, and just encourage people to do some healthier things. So if they're not moving, get them to move a little more and do so in a joyful, you know, not rigid, rule-bound, punitive way, but in a fun, joyful, you know, social way, something that they're more likely to keep up. And if they're eating a very restricted diet of, you know, fun foods or more processed foods, then just adding it rather than telling them cut that out, just maybe add some variety. And I think that, you know, doing those two things, you're encouraging people to move towards being healthier. Look, they might lose some weight in that process. So, but you know, what, what harm are you doing by, by in specific, encouraging specific healthy behaviors? It's a very minor mindset shift, but a really important one. And I think highlights why it is so helpful to spend more than five minutes with your patient. And I completely understand that, like you said, it, you're, you can't bill that way. You can't 
with all of the costs, doctors don't get paid for spending an hour with the patient, even though they might want to. So the quickest and the easiest thing to do or to say for them is, you know, maybe lose weight. But even just what you're saying of, well, what are you doing with the exercise? Maybe we need to switch that up. And are you eating fruits and vegetables? And like, how can we add instead of take away? Could still be a five minute conversation. Exactly. I love how you said take the weight off the table because Dr. Gaudiani and Aaron Flores were doing some research on no weight medical care. And I'm going to show you all and I'll put this in the show notes, but this is a card. So I have clients who won't go see the doctor because they are so tired of being told something about their weight. Um, Mm. and I always use the example that my allergist weighs, measures my height every other month. And I'm like, okay, like, how is that helping you? Like, why are you doing that? Well, we always do that. I did ask. So this says it's a card that I give to some of my clients. If they want to use it, please don't weigh me unless it's really medically necessary. If you really need my weight, please tell me why so that I can give you my informed consent. And on the back, it says some of the things that you, Dr. McGrath, have said. Why? Because most health conditions can be addressed without knowing my weight. Why? Because when you focus on my weight, I get stressed and that's not healthy. Why? Because weighing me every time I come in for an appointment and talking about my weight, like it's a problem, perpetuates weight stigma, which is also a known and serious health risk. And why? Because I pursue healthy behaviors regardless of my weight status, see health at every size. So this is kind of a shout out to more-love.org because our patients really do need some tangible things to help them communicate with their doctor if they're feeling like they're not being heard. And I have had clients like send messages in the portal. And then even in the, in the examining room before the doctor comes in, sending messages through the portal, hoping that they get it. And then, like you said, Dr. McGrath, when you're sending someone to the hospital, you can do your best. You can have everything lined up, but you just don't know on the receiving end if that person in the emergency department is going to be in tune to what your recommendations are, how busy they are, whatever, how much knowledge they have, whether that's going to make any difference. But we can we can always try to tee it up the best way we can. Yeah. As a side note there, referring people to hospital who have serious eating disorders but happen to be in a bigger body are much more likely to get not admitted. So it's so um, frustrating. That's another, that's another frustrating problem. Yeah. And then that's that's more, you know invalidating again for them and right. You know, drives the whole, you know, I'm not worthy of care. Yeah. Um, and I'm doing air quotes, it's atypical anorexia. Yeah. But Malnutrition is malnutrition, no matter what size body and the body suffers. Mm. And we, we do have evidence that there's medical complications that are similar to low weight restricting anorexia. And kind of like what we were talking about earlier, it's, it is sometimes hard to get the whole team or, you know, everybody in the medical area to understand that piece because it isn't crazy research right now, or at least not talking about it enough. But for example, like the article you put out there is something that other practitioners can look at and see like, oh, okay. You know, these things do make a difference. It's not all about weight. It's not all about BMI. So 
having more conversations like that, I, I think is helping the shift. Yeah, I think, I think we like to, as health professionals, we like to practice evidence-based medicine and we like to know that what we're advising people has some merit. And yeah, I, I just think in the scheme of things, this is a relatively new area and there's so much weight-centric research out there. It's just, you know, there's probably publication bias and, and you know, it's, it, you know, it just takes time to, for people to become aware of it. And, and you're right, it's, it's, you know, having conversations, you know, seeing some research or, you know, being given permission in inverted commas to not advise weight loss, you know, I think, you know, little things like that study. I mean, of course, there's always, you know, contradictory evidence out there, but just, mm-hmm. you know, also having our professional bodies acknowledge, you know, that, that you know, weight stigma is a real problem, you know, you know that we do need to look at, you know, non-weight-centric ways of managing people, all of that is helpful in terms of moving forward as a profession. Mm, hugely. I'm reminded of, I'm not sh- I'm not sure if you're familiar with Christy Harrison. She has a podcast called Food Psych, and she was a journalist before she became a dietitian, but she had talked about before she went on a hiatus about research supporting COVID and obesity and the connection to outcomes. And she said, I think she referenced SARS. And she said, when that was first happening, that every, that there was not everything, but a lot of things were pointing to weight. And five years later, there was no connection to weight once they actually looked at the data. So, you know, why is it that we're so quick to jump on it as a problem and that's like you said, maybe we're just a 10 years, a decade or so out of where we don't automatically go there first. Mm. I'm sure, of course, it can contribute in, in to different medical complications in different areas. But why do we jump there first? Yeah, maybe because it's easy to measure. Yeah. Some people say lazy medicine. They call it, it like when you said easy to measure, it's like the, the question that I believe it was Deborah Gard said is if you need to ask your doctor, what would you do for someone in a smaller body? Like Mm. what, what would you be, what would you do? It's so easy. That's why it was called lazy medicine. So easy to just prescribe weight loss. Um, It's just, it's quite complicated to assess how healthy somebody is. It would be nice if there was something we could stick under your tongue and gives us a readout. I know it. (laughs) Hey, when you invent that, will you let us know? (laughs) <laughs> we can say I knew Dr. I McGrath that. when he was just regular person like us. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh, Abby, do you have your wrap-up question? That's exactly what I was thinking. All right. So you can take your time with this because it's a, a loaded question. But if you were to take yourself back to entering into the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? Mm, so many things. <laughs> I guess the, the really early days, the first thing would be just to not be overwhelmed by it. It's not as scary as it at first seems. <laughs> For sure. Just like you said, of course, you. when somebody said, would you like to do this? And you're like, hell no. But then it becomes a passion and you know you're good at it. Yeah. So don't be scared. Rewarding. It is yeah. very rewarding, but we do it together, right? It's, I don't yeah. think I could have done this without all the people. 
I think that's one of the most, one of the things I enjoy a lot about working in this space is, is the team approach, working with other allied health professionals and other doctors, because, you know, as a family doctor, you can feel very, even though you've got other doctors in your office, you can feel very isolated in your little <laughs> office in the suburbs. Yep. And, and this is a, this is a nice, a really nice way of providing care all together as a team and pulling on the same direction for this one person. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mark McGrath, thank you so much for joining us today. You're getting ready to start your day and we're wrapping up our Friday here and moving into the weekend. So we really, really, really appreciate you. My pleasure. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com professionals.